Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio, a show featuring people and companies who are making a positive contribution to the world. This show will help you learn how to apply success principles in every area of your life so that you can make the most out of your skills and talents and accomplish more of your goals. To find out more about the show, please visit www.journeytosuccessradio.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the many and varied challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website, which is Tom, the number two, and Tall, T-A-L-L, dot com. My guest, my guest today is Julianne Burleson. She's a registered reflexologist and owner of Holistic Soul Reflexology. Uh, she began her career in the healing arts after, after graduating from the Tennessee School of Beauty, working at Balaza Day Spa and the world-renowned Chateau Elan in Brazelton, Georgia, as a therapist for many years. She's also an inspirational speaker for women's group, uh, we, women's groups, weekend retreats, and conferences across the country. When she was in her 20s, Julian was tricked into bringing back cocaine-filled artwork from Ecuador and wound up with a 10-year prison sentence there. A Camp Inca was the main prison where she was incarcerated, and in 1997, while in that prison, she was interviewed by the late Mike Wallace of the show 60 Minutes for the episode Innocence Abroad, and I understand that that camp was known as the worst camp on the planet for women. Welcome to the show today, Julian. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm uh, amazing. You know, I always answer amazing, and uh, sometimes uh, it's to remind myself, and other times it's true. Today it's to, uh, a good reminder to myself uh, that it's true. Remember, 40% of the world live on less than $2 a day. Now, this is amazing, spending 10 years, uh, oh, five years, in, that, in an Ecuadorian prison. What was, do you call it? You said it was the worst rated, the worst prison in the world for women. Yeah, one of the prisons that I was in, actually, while I was in Ecuador, Guayaquil, it was rated the worst prison in the world at the time. Um, Caracas, Venezuela was rated the worst for men at that time. Um, so it was a pretty scary place, but my journey actually began in Quito. Oh, I've heard of Quito. Is that a, like a capital city? Yes, yes. It's um, a beautiful city, like 12,000 um, miles up in this, or 12,000 feet up in the Andes Mountain, and it's quite beautiful. There's a lot of historic churches there and and um, a lot of scenic um, countrysides. 
Well, that's where I heard from it. My sister has been on a medical mission trip, I believe, through World Vision to that city. And uh, once you start describing high up in the mountains, it's like, okay, that's where I've heard it before. I understand it's a beautiful area, but uh, not a very wealthy area. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so uh, people are wondering, I'm wondering, what happened that led up to your arrest? How did you get tricked into this? Oh, horrible uh, adventure that uh, ended up costing you so many years in that Ecuadorian prison. Well, let me just tell you, um, I'm from originally from Southern California, and back in 1995, um, some friends of mine invited me to go to Miami for Fourth of July week, and so I decided to go. And while I was in Miami. Um, my friend that I had traveled there with um, asked me if I wanted to continue on to Ecuador with her and her boyfriend to keep her company while he was doing some business. And at first I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't really have money to go. And, you know, I had all the excuses why I couldn't go. And they were like, come on, you're always talking about like traveling the world and stuff. Just come with us. We'll pay for it. It's no big deal. So... I thought, okay, well, why not? Well, the next day, so they went ahead and bought the tickets and everything, and the next day when we were getting ready to leave for the airport, my friend couldn't find her passport. And so we kind of tore the room up looking for the passport all over, you know, all over the room and everything, and her, her and her boyfriend got in a big fight, and so he stormed out of the room. And um, a few minutes later, he came back, and he said, you know what? He said, um, he said, it's no problem. He goes, you'll go ahead of us to Ecuador and we'll just catch the next flight tomorrow and meet you there. And I said, well, wait a minute. I don't want to go by myself. I mean, I'm going to keep you company. <laughs> so, so I, anyways, they talked me into going and, um, and I went ahead and I flew into Ecuador. And when I got there, it was a little bit strange because, um, it almost, there was like a big chain link fence um, at the airport and it almost looked like there were refugees like hanging on the fence it was very third world I was like are they trying to get out are they trying to you know are they trying to keep them in it was just very surreal because I had never been to a third world country before um, so I spent the day there in, in Ecuador I went to my hotel and everything and the next day um, this couple they called me and they said oh well I said oh so are you on your way and they said well we actually have some really bad news they're like you know during that time the Unabomber was giving out a lot of threats to um, all the federal buildings in the US and I think all over the world actually and so they weren't issuing emergency passports at that time so she told me she said I'm not going to be able to be able to come and I said oh okay well then I'll just you know change my flight and I'll be on the next flight back home tomorrow and she was like well actually my boyfriend wanted to ask you if maybe you can change your plans a little bit and stay there for a few days and do us a big favor and I said well what kind of favor and said well you know, he was going there on business and he was going to pick up some um, artwork to bring it back to a restaurant that they were going to be opening up in New York. And um, they were going to um, decorate the restaurant, the Ecuadorian style restaurant with this artwork. That's why they were going there. And I was like, oh, well, you never say anything about any artwork. And so, well, 
Um, that's what we were going there for. So if you would do us a great favor and bring it back for us, it would be great. It would save us a lot of money and, you know. So I started to question it. I was like, well, can't you just send it UPS or Federal Express or something? And they were like, well, it'll be super expensive if we do it that way. So if you could just, you know, bring it on the plane with you, it will only cost like $200 and, you know, we'll pay you back when you get there or whatever. I was like, well, I don't know. You know, it sounds kind of weird. And they're like, Julian, we're your friends. We would never put you in a bad situation. What are you afraid of? So those words kind of came back to haunt me. <laughs> like they still haunt me to this day. And um, so long story short, I went to the airport um, and when I got there, you know, the artwork got checked in and everything um, into customs. And I went to exchange my currency back to dollars because they had a different currency back then. And um, right when I was on my way to exchange it, I hear my name over the loudspeaker. And they're like, Julian, you know, at the time my name was Estrada. Estrada, would you please come to customs? And so I made my way to customs. And when I got there, I was in um, customs was kind of in this um, old-fashioned um, airplane hangar. It looked like something out of, like, World War II, basically. <laughs> and as I walked um, into the middle of this airplane hangar, um, I saw three boxes. And those boxes actually had the artwork in them and my suitcase. And so I walk over, and I'm like, what's going on? So they needed me to open up the boxes, and they wanted to, um, you know, check them out. I guess they do it for everybody that's going through customs with large shipments. So I said, okay. So um, they opened them and everything, and they took the pictures out. Um, they were artwork that looked like pictures. They were made out of ceramic, and they were kind of an oval shape. And they had um, a picture of, like a painted picture of a countryside on top of them, uh, painted on top of it with little, like, animals and people kind of um, um, painted on there. So they said, well, can we put them through the scanners? And I said, sure. So they put them through the scanners three times, and they didn't seem to see any, find anything. Next thing they did was they brought over the dogs and the big German Shepherd dogs to sniff them, and the dogs all sniffed them, and they didn't really seem like they wanted anything to do with the pictures, so they kind of walked away. And so then the police officers started um, kind of shaking the artwork and putting it up to the light and, you know, just doing random tests, I guess, on it. And I, I looked at my watch and I said, um, my plane's getting ready to leave. Um, <laughs> should we be wrapping this up? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is fine. We do this for everyone. I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little worried. My plane's going to leave. And they're like, no, 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 everything's fine. Everything seems to be okay. So they start um, wrapping um, the artwork back up and putting it away and everything, boxing it up. And out of nowhere comes this guy and he looked very very official he had kind of like one of those official hats on you know like a he looked like he was in the military he had a hat on and like stripes on his shirts and stuff and the next thing I know he takes one of the pieces of art and he takes it over to an office and um and then I said who's that and they just kind of nodded like they didn't know 
And then the next thing I knew, um, the guy came running back. He had actually drilled a tiny little hole with like a metal, a sharp metal object into one of the pieces of art and cocaine was streaming out and he was yelling, cocaine, cocaine. And right then I actually passed out. I, they started ripping open all the, um, other pieces of art and there was like cocaine all over the floor. So I passed out cold when I saw it. And <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's how my story began. Wow, wow. Uh, passing out, you knew from what he said and what you saw. You knew you were basically screwed that this was going to be a horrible, horrible incident. And so my wife works for a criminal defense lawyer uh, here in Canada, and I know the system pretty well here, but uh, she keeps telling me how blessed we are to have such a good system here in Canada. How long did it take for you in Ecuador to be arrested and for your case to actually get to trial? Because that can be a long wait. When you're innocent, you want to get your case to court as soon as possible, right? Yeah. It actually took me two years to get to court. Um, during that two-year two period, I had been transferred around quite a bit to different prisons. I started out at Interpol. That When I got arrested, they took me to Interpol. And then um, I was there about three days. And then they didn't charge me there. My embassy came out and they said, um, you have to charge her or let her go. <laughs> and they didn't know what to do with me. So so they sent me to another um, facility called CDP. And I spent about um, 15 to 18 days there. And I got super sick while I was there. Um, I got pneumonia and um, I was sleeping on floors with 20 women in a big rat infested like cage basically and then um they never did charge me when any with anything while i was there either and and human rights came out and they said you have to either charge her or let her go so they decided well they can't charge me and they don't you know so they went ahead and transferred me to another jail called um el inca Car um carcel de mojeres which is um what i nicknamed camp inca and um and so I spent about a year there, and then one night in the middle of the night, they actually um, they actually came to my cell and, and transferred me because they believed I was going to try and escape. Um, and so, and I didn't, and I wasn't planning an escape at that time, <laughs> and not yet, anyways. And um, so they they moved me in the middle of the night, and they took me to a um, a jail called Latacunga which is um, close to Cotopaxi, um, the Cotopaxi volcano, which is exploding right now. It's not exploding a lot, but they've had a lot of um, a lot of little explosions from it, and they're kind of worried about it now, right now, actually. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I got transferred like four times before I even went to court, and then eventually I got sent back to Camp Inca, and then my, my, I started going to court. Um, it took a little bit longer, actually, for me to get sentenced, because just because you go to court doesn't mean you get sentenced. Right. I actually went to court about five times before I actually got a sentence, and um, 
And then finally about three, I guess it was about three years, then I got um, my sentence came down to 10 years. And everybody thought I was going to be going free up until that point. I mean, even like the DEA and like the embassy and police and even the guards, they were like, she's going to go free. Don't worry about it. We all know she's innocent. And, you know, and so not only was I getting so frustrated and and just, you know, it was awful being there. (laughs) I mean, every day was a struggle. But also my family was going through a lot here in the States because they were trying to do everything they could to get me out. And they were getting contacted by like CIA, ex-CIA agents and people claiming that they could extract me, you know, for like $100,000 or something crazy. And my parents were like, well, we don't have that kind of money, you know. But, I mean, they were willing to do whatever it took to get me out of there, but they just couldn't. Um, So... So, yeah, it took me two years <laughs> to get to court, and wow. I did wind up getting a 10-year sentence, and um, that's when I decided I wanted to try to escape. Wow, this is like the ultimate nightmare. <laughs> like uh, You see sometimes on TV, at least in Canada, U.S., people who have been convicted who are innocent and who spend time in jail who are innocent, but rarely in a third-world country rated the worst prison in the world for women. Um, how on earth is it possible to maintain any sanity or hope or not just curl up and die in a ball? Because this is like a, a situation that is just unbelievable. And you, although, as you said, like everybody thought you were going to go free. Were you, were you ever able to determine, like, what the heck happened? I was just convicted when everybody around me in this system said... I was going to be going free, that they knew I was innocent. Like So I guess up until then you have hope. But once you're sentenced, like, how do you not go just plain insane? Well, I did, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, it was really hard to keep my sanity while I was there. Um, I didn't speak the language. Um, they spoke Spanish there. And, you know, of course, in the prison, you have people from all over the world. So you have different languages, but the main language was Spanish. And it took me a long time to learn it. Um, I didn't start learning it until I was there about three years. And I, you know, people would say, well, maybe we need to bring you some books, like missionaries and stuff. They would say, well, we can bring you books, you know, and you can start to learn Spanish. And I'm like, I don't want to learn Spanish because I don't want to stay here you know it's like I don't want to make myself at home I don't want to have a kid I don't want to get married to anyone it's like I want to go home and so it was really frustrating because most of the other prisoners that were there you know once they were sentenced they kind of got really comfortable you know they had a kid they you know they they just made themselves at home and they decided, you know, well, I'm going to be here for X amount of time. I'm going to just make the most out of it. But I just wouldn't do that. Um, so I, I basically, I cried probably every day that I was there. But I always try to be really productive. Like, how am I going to get out of here? You know, so I started actually reading law books in Spanish and not even knowing. That's how I pretty much taught myself how to speak Spanish was, you know, reading law books and um, and and trying to communicate with people in Spanish. But I never did take a course. And. You know, it it really was a day-to-day struggle. Um, after I was there three years, um, you know, I did I, I did try to escape, and they actually caught 
cut, me, not me, but they, we were going to make a hole in one of the walls and they caught it, um, right as it, when we were going to break out of it. And, um, they weren't sure who had dug that hole. And so they, um, they figured out that I was one of the people involved with it. And so they transferred me. That's when they transferred me to Waikil. And when I was in Waikil, um, that was actually, like we said, it's the worst prison in the world. They had snakes there. They had scorpions. They have crazy elephant grass that's like three feet high, um, you know, throughout the prison. And it's just awful and dirty. And there's lots of, you know, murders there. And it's just terrible, horrible. When you get there, all it does is smell of death. I mean, basically. So when I was there, though, my dad came to visit me and he asked me, he said, um, I have a couple of things to talk to you about. Um, one is we want you to go on 60 Minutes. They're going to be out here interviewing another guy um, that's on the men's side of the prison and they need a, another person to interview. So and you, you're the only one here that's innocent. <laughs> so you're the obvious choice. And I said, well, OK, um, yeah, I can do that. And then another thing he wanted to talk to me about was um, he said, Julian, are you have you been reading your Bible? And I was like, no, dad, are you OK? <laughs> and I'm like, because my dad wasn't a Christian up until that point. So I was really surprised. And um, and so that helped because, you know, I started reading my Bible a little bit and it really brought a little bit a piece to my life, even though I was in the worst possible prison in the world, I was still getting a little bit of peace. And around that time also, I want to tell you this one story because this, this was a big turning point in my life that I, for, I started to forgive. Um, there was a drug lord that was um, a Colombian drug lord that was on the men's side of the prison. He had heard about my story, you know, since I had on the 60 minutes um uh clip and so he wanted to meet me and so one day um he got some permissions and stuff for me to go over to the men's side and talk with him and he asked me you know about my story and i told him my whole story and when when i was done telling him he said did you ever wonder what would have happened to you if you wouldn't have gotten arrested and i said well i said i would have gone on to I would have gone on to Miami, you know, and and um, and then to California, and and the artwork would have went on to New York, and I would have never known the difference that there were drugs in it. And he said, "No, that's not what would have happened." He said, first of all, in Miami, a couple guys would have probably met you at the airport, and they would have taken you and the artwork to an undisclosed location, and they would have." taken it out, they would have weighed it, they would have measured it, they would have tested it to make sure it was the shipment that they had ordered. And then they probably would have held a gun to your head and they might have given you one of two choices. Either you do this for them again and become like their human slave, basically, or they would have just killed me. And in that moment, I found like peace. I would say I found peace from a drug lord in that moment because... It was so amazing. I was like, oh, my gosh. It's like things could be worse. I mean, so I almost feel like after that point, it was a turning point where I really, I felt like, um, you know, that God had protected me rather than punished me. 
Wow. And um, it really helped me to let go of feelings, bad feelings I had to the friends that had did did this to me. And it helped me, you know, and and I've always heard that, you know, forgiveness is more about forgiving forgiveness for yourself more than somebody else, you know, so you can move on. And that is so true. Um, but that was a valuable lesson that I have learned. And, and it was amazing that it came from a drug lord. <laughs> wow, amazing. Who, what a horrific life story where actually being imprisoned in a third world jail uh, it, it was, was actually it was better neat, it was than, a, than going back it was a and neat, delivering um, time. Who would have ever, I had never thought him. of that. And then after that, the prison started going a little bit crazy. So I decided I was going to try and get back to Camp Inca because um, because I needed to finish out my course of my, uh, you know, my sentence at that prison. So that way, when it was time for me to go free, I would be able to to go free easier because you need to be in your province um, when, you know, it's time to go free. So. Um, I fought really hard to get back there, but I did. I got back to Camp Inca, and then, um, you know, my remainder of my time there. It's amazing, because after that trip to Guayaquil, um, my life got a little bit easier. Um, and, and I know it had to be because the Lord was in my life, you know, Amen. that Amen. I had accepted him. Wow. So imagine a story as horrible as yours where actually going to prison actually saved your life. I had never even thought of it, but for sure, once you delivered those paintings, as that drug lord had told you in prison, they would have either made you to be a human mule slave to them or they would have killed you. And until you met him, that probably, that thought never never came to my mind until you mentioned the story and probably never came to your mind either that actually being in prison uh, saved your life because it sounds pretty sure like that's what those people receiving the artwork on the other end would have done to you. Yes. And then imagine a father who's not even a Christian suggesting you read the Bible and I'm a Christian. I've read that thing back and forth at least 15 times and uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul, the most inspirational writing of all time, often comes while he's chained to soldiers on either side of him, and you would never gather from reading what he's writing that he's in uh, prison that probably the same quality of the one in Ecuador with big iron chains on his feet while he's writing this most inspirational uh, uh, letters that will be transferred and read and inspire billions of people around the world. Uh, incredible to think about uh, how the Bible can bring hope uh, to someone even in, in dire, dire, horrible circumstances like you were. Yes, <laughs> I totally agree. Wow. wow. <laughs> That's not an advertisement for reading the Bible. Come on. <laughs> now, the, pic- the picture on your book is... Uh, interesting, uh, colorful. Uh, where did that picture come from? Well, actually, um, when I had gone back to um, Camp Inca um, one morning, I was sleeping. And it was about eight o'clock in the morning, and I hear this knock on my door, and I was like, "What? I'm sleeping," you know. And they're like, "Open the door!" And so I opened the door. And they said, look out your window. And I said, why? And and when I looked out my window, this big volcano had exploded. <laughs> wow. 
outside my window. It was like five miles from the prison, and I just happened to have a throwaway camera in my room because a missionary had given it to me because she wanted me to take some um, candid shots of the prison because they were going to do a documentary on it. And so I grabbed the camera and I just started clicking away, you know, and um, I was like, wow. I mean, in one moment, I just took a step back and realized how small we are as people in the bigger scheme of things, you know, and it was just so overwhelming and just right there outside my window. So when I got home, I actually still had those pictures and um, and I always thought if I ever did write a book that that volcano was going on my cover. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Well, the history of behind the picture, it's even more meaningful. Uh, talk about what was it like being on 60 Minutes? Uh, Mike Wallace just asked you like half a dozen questions. And did, did you get treated better by people in prison after? Or did it generate any kind of positive results of being on 60 Minutes? It was funny because, like, the people there, the Ecuadorian people, they didn't really know what was going on um, so much. Right, they don't watch 60 Minutes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a Spanish version or something kind of like it, but they didn't really know what it was. And um, they actually came and spent, like, three days with me. And his film crew spent um, three days on the women's side with me. And he did, he came like one or two of those days. And then the actual interview, um, that was on 60 minutes, that was aired on 60 minutes was filmed on the men's side. Um, because it's a lot cleaner and more, um, organized, I guess you could say the women's side was not organized one bit and it was just awful, terrible, dirty and everything. And I don't know, it's just, I guess, 60 Minutes didn't really feel like the American public was ready to see that and know really what was going on there. Because a lot of the interview actually got, um, you know, clipped out of it. So, on the cutting room floor, (laughs) unfortunately. But um, it was neat spending some time with Mike Wallace. He is a very nice man and... And I, I talked to him about, you know, things that just all the different interviews he had done, you know, in his life. And it was amazing to spend a little bit of time with somebody normal <laughs> for a change. I was always very excited when anyone, when I got any kind of visits because um, people would come and visit me um, from like the South American Explorers Club and other church groups and things like that. And so I was always super happy when, you know, they came to see me because we would have normal conversations and of course they wanted to know my story but I could find out what was going on in the world <laughs> <laughs> that's helpful now now uh, your book uh, reached number one status on Amazon in several categories uh, what is it you want to do with this book and and with your story who is it that you want to reach and what message do you want to give people because my goodness I cannot even imagine I'm one of the most positive people in the world and pretty resilient but I cannot imagine going through what you went through and so what is it you want to do with this book and, and the story and and who is it that you want to reach with your message 
Yes, I would love, love to um, to reach out to women between the ages of 18 and 30, um, spe- specifically like sorority girls, because I think sorority girls were a lot like how I was. Um, you know, they, they're in school all year or whatever, and then they, you know, I had a job at the time, I wasn't in school, but it was like in the summer, you know, they like to travel and have fun and they just think that they're so untouchable, like nothing will ever happen to them. And I was that girl where I trusted people. I never had a reason to tr- un- not trust people. I would share taxis with people in L.A. Um, and, you know, I just I just never met a stranger. And I always thought, oh, if I did get in trouble, my dad would probably bail me out. And that's I think is that's how young girls think these days. And so if I could make a difference in, in their lives, so that way they hopefully they wouldn't make the same, just educating them, and um, so that way they wouldn't make the same mistakes I did. But also, I would like to also let them know that if they did make mistakes like that, that it's not the end of the world, you know. Um, there are blessings that will come out of them eventually, not right away, because <laughs> we do have to obviously, you know, um, when we when we make those mistakes, obviously we have to deal with the consequences. Unfortunately, but um, but it does make us a stronger and better person. So I would like to reach out to that age group, but also to any age group and any gender. I mean, I I I've spoken at women's um, retreats and conferences so far, and um, and so far I'm gaining a lot of really good great feedback and people are saying oh my gosh I want my daughter to hear your story oh I want my son to hear your story you know I want my grandchild to hear it and so I'm getting a lot of really good feedback and so I really just want to make a difference I want to get the word out there that you know no matter what you've gone through you can still make a difference in other people's lives and Camp Inca is actually, um, you know, it was a literal prison that I was in, but I'm also using it as a metaphor. Like, what is your Camp Inca? What have you been through? Do you keep going back to it, or do you move forward and and do something with it? Now you're talking. Now you're talking, because this is in the realm of and in the realm of your husband, Gary's uh, field. Uh, Napoleon Hill taught us that thoughts are things. And the Mm -hmm. average person experiences 60,000 thoughts a day. And so I'm trying to help people to uh, maintain a positive balance of those thoughts during difficult times, challenging times, adversity. There's (laughs) There's no one better that could help people, teach people, and encourage people to think more positive thoughts than yourself. Have a third world jail, horrible conditions, innocent and you're stuck with your 60,000 thoughts a day, uh, there's a lot of hope you can give men, women, anybody that are suffering with thoughts that are pounding through their 60,000 thoughts a day about their challenges. Uh, talk a little bit about about that, because maintaining control of those 60,000 thoughts, especially while you're in a prison, and then even afterwards, not being filled with hatred and and other negative emotions and actually using that story for the good of God and others. Talk about that a bit because that's pretty an incredible part of your story as well. 
Yes, I agree. It's so hard not to go down the rabbit hole while you're there. You know, you. I wish somebody would have brought me Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill while I was there. That would have been like a phenomenal book for me to read while I was there. And um, But, you know, my family just really kept me positive. And I had missionaries that were visiting me. And I had to keep myself busy. Um, even though I wasn't making myself at home there, I did come up with my own projects. I started a bakery while I was there, and I actually um, uh, hired on women to help me with it. So it would help them support their family and, you know, not get involved with drugs and, uh, and men and all this other stuff or women, you know, whatever, what they were into, you know, to pass the time. So I always tried to think of things that were um, more of a positive light, and we also started a Bible study there, which is actually still going strong 15 years later. Um, I recently met a girl that was um, incarcerated there um, two years after I left, and um, she's been free now about, um, I think, about eight years, and she came to visit me in, here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, a couple weeks ago, and she was like, oh, my gosh, Julianne, I'm finally meeting you. You're like the legend. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, no, you don't even understand. She's like, everybody, when they get arrested and they're a foreigner, um, they go into the jail. It's like the first stories they start hearing is about Julianne, the American, and all the things I did while I was there to, like, make life better. And um, it's kind of funny because I didn't realize I did that while I was there. It wasn't until after I left that I was like, wow, I did all those things, you know, and I started writing the book. And But I was that kind of person anyways before I went in there. So I guess, you know, I, I was – I tried to, you know – make things happen, I guess it was. So it just shows you that no matter what kind of situation you are in, you know, you don't have to be in jail to do something great. <laughs> you, you know, no matter what what situation you're in, you, you can start a Bible study, you can start a bakery, you can start whatever, you know, your talent is, find out what your talent is and, and become it, you know. Um, that's the best kind of job to have is, mm -hmm. is a job that, that you love, <laughs> that right. you love to do. Um, right now, I, I ha I'm a reflexologist by trade, and I actually taught myself reflexology when I was in prison. So it's kind of funny how that came out of that. And when I got back to the States, I became certified in Georgia, and, and then now I'm registered through the state here in um, Tennessee. And um, I have my own practice. It's at a wellness center called Almadium. It's a wellness and um, healing arts center. But next year, we're, we have some really exciting things that are going to be happening. Um, we're going to start doing workshops. And we have a team about, right now we have a team with about eight people, but it's growing to about 12 to 15. And we're going to be doing workshops and events and different things. And we're, it's all going to be, um, you know, around, it's all going to be um, based around wellness and healing arts inside and out. And wow. really maximizing the present and, you know, and and concentrating on that and helping other people and making a difference in the world. 
Amen. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. We each have a purpose <laughs> that we were designed and created for. And so uh, if you can help people, you know, just do that. That's uh, probably the most important thing you could ever teach anybody. So let's remind people, or I haven't even told them yet, so reminding is the wrong word, but your website <laughs> your website is campinca.com. So camp, if I need to spell that for people, you need something more than a book, uh, then inca, I-N-C-A.com, campinca.com. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Julian, for being on the show. This is an incredible story. It's no wonder that your book reached uh, best-selling status in a number of categories. Uh, I got to read it myself because. And also uh, in Canada, yeah. we were number three, and in Australia, we were number eight. Wow. Wow, well, for sure, I got to read it, yeah, for sure, no matter what anybody's challenge in North America is, I think if they read that book, they're going to feel better after reading that book, even, it, even if nothing about their current challenge changes, uh, your book will at least make them think, well, at least I'm not Julianne. Yes, things could be worse. <laughs> things could be worse. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is an amazing story. Camp Inca. Dot com is the website. Uh, Surviving Camp Inca is the book, which is available on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, wherever books are sold. Find the book. Read the book. It will help you. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. So just thank you so much for being on the show today, Julian. I really, really appreciate your time, and what an amazing story. You're welcome. It was great meeting you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Journey to Success Radio. If you or anyone you know would like to be interviewed for the show, email Tom at TomTooTall.com for details. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.